All right, we are in Esther chapter 2 and 3 tonight. Tonight's class is called Injustice, and I was wondering how I should open this. Uh, when I taught this at our other location on Monday, it happened to be Martin Luther King Day, and that's just a ready-made injustice thing. Um, but uh, the, his birthday, birthday this week, and the celebrating his, his life and his civil disobedience and that kind of stuff. And yeah, I had something happen in my house, and I wanted to share that with you because it highlights um, injustice, I guess. So back when I was in my early 20s, I, I got my very first apartment, and I had somebody, they were dear friends of mine, older people, and older kind of, they didn't have any kids, they were just, um, they were just an, an older couple, and older to me was they were in their 30s, and I think they were mid to late 30s, I couldn't tell, they were just older than me, and they adopted me, they thought I was the coolest thing, I was their youth pastor at the time, and they thought, oh, you have your apartment, and you don't have anything in your apartment, do you remember how churches used to be, where if you wanted to get rid of a couch, you dropped it off with your church youth ministry, and all the youth ministry, we get all the nasty couches, okay, so I, I got my first, I got my first furniture, by essentially taking from the church whatever was in the church rec room i took them into the apartment and uh, so they came and said joel you don't have anything so they did the best possible thing they took me to walmart and they said we're going to get things for you and they didn't i mean they were so generous plates cups a coffee maker i didn't drink coffee yet and all these things and and you know time happens i've since moved a few times i've gotten married and ladies you know if uh, your 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 husband brings in things from his first apartment and uh, I don't think they're going to survive, and be part, especially when you can uh, do a wedding registry and that kind of stuff. So none of my things survived, and it's just time and, and distance and all that fun stuff, except one thing, a fork. <laughs> now, I bring up this fork for a reason. That, that silverware set they bought me, just a random Walmart, it was the greatest silverware set I've ever had. Heavy heavy silverware really like you're like you're spending a lot of money on this no it was just the what, whatever cost whatever they bought but the i always remember the forks were so great and for some reason maybe it was my subconscious maybe it was i don't know but a fork survived my kids love this fork they have they have there's a certain chair around the table that they fight over i'm going to sit in that chair and the irony is it's the most heavy duty chair in our set i should be getting that chair all the time and guarantee nothing's going to fall. But no, 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 both kids want that chair. And sometimes I find them sitting next to each other on the same chair and eating because that's the way it is. But my daughter, Julia, when she tries to, she runs the house. She can just make the day really fun. And she got the fork, the fork. I remember, I only have one of those forks. I mean, we have since bought two, two nice sets uh, we our wedding set that is since kind of you know petered out or whatever, and then we went and just ordered another set of jewelry, our jewelry, another set of flatware, whatever, silverware, really nice. It's like okay, great. Like we got the next stage up. Like yeah, we're moving now. And uh, but that fork remained, and that's the fork they want. Julia, my daughter, had that fork, and she's doing the thing, brother. She's waving it, and Joshua's usually he's pretty a cool dude, but all of a sudden he wasn't having it. And all of a sudden, World War III is starting at the table. Their mommy, my wife, is telling them, knock it off, stop, stop fighting over that. And I was telling them, hey, enough already. You know, if, you, if you don't stop with this stinking fork, I'm going to take the fork from you. And uh, she wasn't having it. So I went over there to my daughter, 
And I said, yoink! And I took the fork, and I gave her one of her little, I don't know, pink princess forks or something like that. Here, use this. Well, you can imagine, Julia threw a fit. Now, here, here's why I bring this up. Joshua, though they had been arguing and pointing fingers at each other, Joshua starts to say, I'm not going to be on Team Daddy. I'm going to be on Team Julia. Joshua becomes a superhero. He goes across the room. I'm busy being, putting dishes away or doing something, and he just runs full force and slams into my side. Oh, my gosh, what's going on here? And he's like, give me that fork. And he takes it, and I wasn't paying attention. He wrestled it out of my hand. I had my hands doing other things. But, uh, yeah, he got it away. He goes back to Julia like a conquering prince, and she says, here, Julia, here's your fork. Now, Julia responded like a kitty cat would respond. I don't trust cats. You know why? The cat will roll over and give you the belly to rub. You'll get to rubbing it, and for no reason, a cat will just nail you. Dogs don't do that, but a cat, he gives the fork to Julia. Julia, still mad, swipes at him. And Joshua goes away going, well, I, I got you the fork. And I turned around from the other side of the room and said, I have my Mordecai illustration right there. That was injustice for that boy. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was going to get something. I don't know, uh, thank you, Baba, or thank you, you know, big brother. Good job. Or, wow, you know, thank you. And, you know, and I don't know. And, and he got a smack for it. And uh, that was, for a seven-year-old, that was injustice. Now, it pales in comparison to the injustices of our day. It really pales to what's going to happen to Mr. Mordecai here. But it still happens. When you're expecting not to get something bad happen, we say this in our language, no good deed goes unpunished, something like that. So we're going to have the plot, we're going to have a promotion, we're going to have a plan and a proclamation. Let's open with some prayer. God, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for these men and women who have given up their time to study your word and uh, to be challenged and encouraged. We pray that that happens tonight, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are going to be in Esther chapter 2. It's the wrong e-book. My app is on Ephesians. We can't have that. Ephesians is great. Let's go to Esther, 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 Esther. You guys all beat me there, I'm sure. Esther chapter 2, and we are going to finish chapter 2, and then go to chapter 3. This is the, the plot 19 to 23. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept, her secret, kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. So we learned some things about Queen Esther here. Wow. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So we learned two things about Queen Esther. In fact, I found three things. A couple things we learn is that... Uh, she kept her family and nationality a secret. Now, we knew she did that at the beginning, but, um, yeah, she's been queen, and she is, she's already made the inner circle. She's in. The crown's on her head, 
but she kept things a secret still. In fact, she keeps following Mordecai's instructions. Now, maybe she feels some family loyalty here. She didn't have her mom and dad anymore, and Mordecai raised her. And it looks like he did a good job of raising her. She seems pretty put together. But she keeps following his instructions. It just stands out. She's like the anti-Vashti. Now, we didn't say too many bad things about Vashti in week one. She seemed like the only adult in the room with Xerxes' nonsense. But, but yeah, Vashti was uh, not at all deferential like Esther. And here, we would expect Esther to play politics. What would politics look like? Husband, I have found out that there is a plot against your life. I have my sources. The sources are trustworthy. Or a whistleblower said this or whatever it was. Here it is. And, and it's going to be true. You need to take care of this husband. And all of a sudden, boom, he finds out it's true. And then, uh, well, great job, Queen Esther. Let's give you a prize. Instead, she goes out of her way to not take the credit. That takes a special kind of person. Yeah, she's on the front lines. Yeah, she's doing this. But then she goes out of her way to make sure that Mordecai gets the credit. That's something. That is not small. We don't see that all the time. I don't know if, if our parents teach us to act that way or not. To go out of our way to lift up someone else. When you could just, just as easily, without even lying, get the credit. That's something. There's a character. So Esther, she's, she's, she's got some good character qualities. She just, she's different than the normal kind of dog-eat-dog -dog world kind of person where you've got to stab each other in the back to try to rise. Yeah, I, I like how the narrator points that out. It's like she took great pains to make sure Mordecai got the credit. That's kind of cool. I, I thought that was really cool. What do we expect here to happen as the reader? Well, we have Mordecai, of course, makes his move. Mordecai is Johnny on the spot. He's there. He's there to make sure he can look over Queen Esther. Uh, the people must realize that Mordecai, either his job in the king's uh, kind of court, he's able to be there. No one's saying anything about it. No one's kicking him out. None of that stuff. He's able to be there, or they realize, yeah, that's Queen Esther's guy. And that's her, you know, uncle or father figure, so he can stay. He can hang around. Kind of like, I mean, we're not surprised when John is present at the crucifixion. John was probably a relative of Jesus. Jesus would not have left Mary in some random person's hands. John would have, I know he was the only one that was courageous of all the disciples to be there, but legally he probably, Rome wouldn't have said anything because he probably was, so he was the disciple that Jesus loved. I wonder if that did double duty. He probably was family. So it made all the sense in the world for, for Jesus to say, hey, Mary, mother, here's your son, son, here's your mother. If he's a cousin or something, it makes sense. We don't know for sure, but most likely that's the case. He just wouldn't do that to anybody. And if he was going to do that, Peter would be the obvious person there. But uh, I digress. So we have Mordecai here on the spot and a king who keeps records. I wonder, because, you know, the narrator makes sure we are left to salivate on whatever drips from the narrator's pen. We couldn't criticize Queen, uh, Esther too much back when she had to have her night with the king. We wanted to. We wanted the narrator to give us a yeah, but. Remember that? But he didn't. The narrator gave us nothing. The narrator said nothing, so we're left. We can't say much. So when the narrator does speak, we pounce on it. And the narrator points out that she took great pains to make sure Mordecai got the credit. 
that Mordecai is there, and that the king had records. I wonder if that's going to play up in the story later on. Because I, I see this narrator being like a minimalist. He's giving you just what you need. So when he throws more detail in there, we have to go, oh, aha, maybe that's important later on. What's the reader expect here to happen? What did my son expect to happen? He expected Julia to smile and say, thank you. Well, we expect Mordecai to get an attaboy. A king's going to take records, and, uh, and the queen made sure that the, the king knew that Mordecai was the guy who saved his life and, and foiled the coup. And wow, this would be like the president being killed by a secret service. These are the guys that guarded the door. So these are like the inner chamber kind of thing. They're the ones that the king has to depend upon almost the most. I mean, these are the B guys. And yeah, so this is huge. We expect Mordecai to get, get an attaboy, to get something. So we got to continue. We're in chapter 3 now. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. Ooh. Son of Hamidatha the Agagite. Ooh, that's random. We're going to get there. Don't worry. Elevating him and giving him a seat of honor, higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel or pay him honor. All right. Our poor Mordecai's got a spine. We didn't see it earlier when he told Esther to hide and go in that bedchamber and go be a part of that. But we're seeing it here. We're finally seeing just a glimpse of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a generation before not bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue of gold and willing to take the fiery furnace, come what may. All right, Mordecai. Thank you, narrator, for giving us that. Okay, all right. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. I missed that line. When I first read Esther a few months ago, or I read it again, I missed that. Mordecai, it's as if Mordecai is inviting the reaction to a degree. He's like, I see this as Mordecai firing a shot across the bow. I'm not only going to bow down, not going to bow down, I'm not going to do it because I'm a Jew. Because otherwise, we're going to see Haman's reaction and we're going to go, wow, if I read it in the text, we'll boo, but otherwise, I'm going to say his name a lot. But yeah, we're going to see his reaction and go, gosh, that's awful random. Now it's not so much random. It's still going to be horrible, but it's, it's, it's almost as if Mordecai was provoking it a bit. If not provoking it, he's giving this more information and we're seeing him finally take some kind of a stand of his faith. Whereas before, we didn't see it. But he's telling them he's a Jew. There's enough there that we're left to wonder, well, he told him he was a Jew. Okay, when, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel or down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, see, there we go, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now, 
There is no country, if you look in the annals of the Old Testament, you look at all the, the table of nations from Genesis and all throughout the history, there is no country. Uh, when you see uh, in Hebrew, when you see it, like Israelite or Amalekite, that's a good translation, but the Hebrew literally is son of. So sons of Israel, it would be Israelite, okay? And so the Amalekites, sons of Amalek. Here, there's no country of Agag. But the narrator calls him an Agagite. I don't even know how to pronounce his name, so he's just going to play with it there. An Agagite. So to help you, we have a history lesson and an injustice. I literally put the text on your sheet. It comes from 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them when they came up out of Egypt. You interested about that? It's in Exodus 17. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. This is not, I am a very pro-life pastor. This is not a pro-life verse. Okay, this is not one I hang my hat on. I don't open with this when I talk about abortion. This is one of those verses that, that, that our atheist friends love to pounce on. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. In the Hebrew, this is called not a harem, a harem. God instituting the harem, which means wipe them all out. Leave nothing. Total scorched earth. They're done. Everything breathing that belongs to them is gone. Okay. So, Saul did not. He instead took Agag, the king, alive. He then kept the best for themselves. All the best sheep and donkeys. It's like they're going out there and they find a couple Rolls Royces and like, this is going to go to waste. Why kill this? Why burn this? Let's just take it back. This is good stuff. This is a prime cattle. This sheep is awesome. Let's take these sheep back. They don't make them like this where we're at. Let's take these. He brings them back. It got so bad that if you follow the text, God says this, quote, I regret that I made Saul king. Dang. Now, I'm a Reformed theologian. That's about as high on God's sovereignty as possible. God, I don't think, can regret anything. God has a plan A. There is no plan B. So, but we're talking about God telling us. It's all, we read other verses about God having a hand. His right hand is going to save us. No, no, no. First John tells us God is spirit. With the exception of Jesus, the word made flesh, God does not take on flesh in the way that we think. So it's kind of a personification for us. So God speaking in a way. Saul's issue here is pretty big to make God go, gosh, this guy. So we get to verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him confidently, thinking surely the bitterness of death has passed. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. Mic drop, Samuel. Dang. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. So it makes me wonder about this. That's the only other reference we get to Agag. This Haman is an Agagite. So, it makes me wonder, did he have a lineage that we don't know about? Did somebody survive that goes back to him? And if that is the case, if this Haman guy can trace his lineage back to this Agag, what would he be nursing deep within him? Bitterness. Anger. 
if I ever get that chance to take on these Jews, these Hebrew people, you just give me that chance. If I get that chance, we have an injustice in a history lesson. I, I don't want to read this quote to you, but I'm going to read this quote. Because I saw in that idea, and you're going to know why almost immediately, this burning hatred that, that Haman seems to have. Going back to Agag, there was another guy in history that for no reason at all seems like had this seething hatred. And we see this, this idea when uh, we get worldly tolerance on display. By the way, this is one of those things I've learned in life. The more somebody preaches about tolerance, oh, I just wish we could all be so tolerant. That person, by and large, is usually the most intolerant person you'll ever find. That's the great irony about worldly tolerance. You want everybody to be tolerated, but if you are like me on a college campus like I was, and you were a different kind of person than other people were, and with a different kind of voice, they didn't tolerate my voice. They didn't like my voice. They didn't like what I stood for. They didn't like that I was a Christian. They didn't like that I voted differently. They didn't like that I thought differently and that I stood up against abortion, that I stood up against the injustices of, of, of different things. And like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we tolerate everybody, but we tolerate you less. You see, worldly tolerance is not at all tolerance. The great irony. Whoever's tolerance is the one holding the microphone. They have the power, and they get to decide who's at the conversation table and who is not tolerated. The more someone calls for tolerance, I bet. So that's why I don't like the coexist bumper sticker. There are certain letters on the coexist. They don't coexist with anything. The C, for example. It's like, go, those people on the other side of the world that are literally killing our Christian brothers and sisters, please tell them to coexist. Don't preach that to me, a Christian who loves you, no matter what you believe. But we're the ones who were told, coexist, be tolerant. Okay. We also see what happens when anger meets power and finds opportunity. Haman is angry. He now has power. And watch, he's going to have opportunity. We see it one other time in history. I quote, and I hate this quote, but I quote, If I am ever really in power, the destruction of the Jews will be the first and most important job. As soon as I have power, I shall have gallows erected in Munich, as many of them as traffic allows. Then the Jews will be hanged one after another, and they will stay hanging until they stink. They will stay hanging as long as hygienically possible. As soon as they are untied, then the next group will follow, and that will continue until the last Jew in Munich is exterminated. Exactly the same procedure will be followed in other cities until Germany is cleansed of the last Jew. Adolf Hitler, 1922. That's before. That's decades before World War II. And he's already, he's already saying, if I get my shot, I know what I'm going to do. I'm taking out those Jews. I sent this quote to my buddy, Mick, who teaches at Displains. His first thought was, did you find a Haman quote? What is that? Because it is. That might as well be Haman. He gets it. Boom, boom, boom again. He's getting his shot. He's been nursing this grudge, this bitterness. He's like, if I ever get my chance, how do I know? Because for no reason he gets the chance, and boom, the first thing he wants to do is, we would all expect, okay, Mordecai, you stepped in the wrong puddle there, pal. He's going to have to deal with you. We can't have this insubordination. You've got to die. We don't want you to die, but he has the right. The king gave him power. You've got to die. Crispy critters, goodbye, Mordecai. But instead, he's like, no, Mordecai. Oh, he's going to get his. But he's got a people. 
and we got to give it to them. Wow. Okay. The plot and the promotion. 7 to 11. Here we go. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a, Haman, there we go, to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took a signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamidatha the Agagite. There it is again, just to remind us. And then the narrator says one more thing, the enemy of the Jews. Now, I don't know why the king says this. At this point in history, he came back from battle. He's dead broke. He needs money more than anything. So, so Haman's ploy there was brilliant politics. I'll put a bunch of money in your treasury, king. Let me do what I want. The king says, ah, oh, keep the money. And do with the people as you please. Now, I don't know why he said that. He needed money. Maybe he's putting up a show. I don't know. Esther's been queen for five years at this point. We just read in the, in the 12th year. She became queen at year seven. Go check your chapters. The narrator has been telling us at what year of King Xerxes' reign things happen. The last time we were told it was year seven. Now we're at year 12. She's had a crown on her head for five years. And, oh, and she's kept a secret for five years. Dang. And only now, now, stuff is happening. Don't be surprised when a manipulator has misled someone. Manipulators try to get a response out of you. They don't care if they have to twist the truth or not. How do I know that? It's all throughout the pages of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, the very first manipulator. Did God really say that? He's trying to get Eve to taste the fruit of the forbidden tree. His opening move is to question the whole nature of truth. Did God say that? Did God really say that? By the way, the reason why we blame Adam for Eve's sin, she's blamed too. Because Adam was right there, should have said, shut it. God did say that, and I'm here now. So enough of this nonsense. But no, did God really say that? How about in John chapter 8, Jesus talks about this very Satan. He's the father of lies. And then in Revelation 20, Satan's released from prison after the thousand years and is able to go out and to deceive. Blows my mind in Revelation 20. People, if you take the millennial kingdom, literally is a thousand years of Jesus ruling on a throne. The perfect ruler ruling over this new kingdom on earth for a thousand years or almost a thousand years. And these people, they've had a thousand years of Jesus ruling and Satan gets out and right away, boom, he gets an army. He goes out to deceive and he gets people lining up. There's people out there that say, you know what, God, if, if, if you know what, if I just see a sign, if, he, they, if, if they just make this field goal, God, I'll be in church, I'll have to be a new man. You know, no, you freaking won't. Don't give anybody that baloney. The moment God has to answer to your sign, you got God at that point. You got him. Oh, you answered my sign, did you? Well, guess what? I want another one. Oh, no, 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 you did it once, you'll do it again. There is no faith there, or there's just barely. 
No. That's why I'll be surprised if Gideon's in heaven. Because Gideon did it twice, right in a row. I ain't his judge. Just saying. I don't want to get started on Gideon. If he's in heaven, he's going to be waiting for me. He's going to give me a shot. He's going to say, no, 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 no. Bradshaw's finally here. Hold on. Come here, big rev. Boom. I don't know, um, but manipulators mislead and so he's misleading we don't know why he knows because because the irony here is that the jews aren't that separate if they were the big separators they'd have gone back when cyrus let them go back they're the ones saying no no no, we're good we're not going to go back to our promised land we're going to stay here in persia because there are jews that have gone back ezra nehemiah all that a whole new temple and stuff is being built and they said no we're not going back so these people are not about being separate they're about being assimilated it's like a Star Trek episode. They're full-on assimilation. They're good with that. That's their thing. Otherwise, they would have gone back when it was even legal to do so. So, Satan is a deceiver. He's a manipulator. There are people like that that want to manipulate others. And they'll twist whatever truth they get to get their outcome. Question, is learning God's will a matter of rolling the dice? If the answer is yes, then Ouija boards are in play. If the answer is yes and that little magic eight ball thing, does he like me? Does my crush think I'm really nice? The answer seems positive. Okay, that's a good sign. Remember the magic eight ball? Remember those things? And you ask your yes or no question and you wait for the thing, you shake it up, and then an answer shows up on that little screen. Is that what God's will is all about? Can we just roll dice and say, okay, God, this is what your will is? The problem is, God's worked that way in the past. Samuel, that same Samuel, shows up to uh, King David's house. And he knew when all David's brothers passed by, that ain't the one, that ain't the one, that ain't the one, that ain't the one. In the breastplate of the high priest, there is an umim and a tumim, urim and tumim, these two stones for telling the will of God that rest behind the breastplate of the high priest. You see, God has done that. God has sometimes cast a lot. He did this in Joshua's day. When the promised land got divided up, they cast lots for this one, for this one, for this one. And that's like rolling dice. You see, when God tells you to do it, then it's not a problem because you're not disobeying God. But if you're trying to do divine things, you're trying to seek some kind of, some kind of secret information, there's this desire that people have. They want to find out information without going to God's word. That's the thing is we have God's complete word you don't need to go to any of those sources. Back then when they did it, they, all they had was prophets. That's it. They, they just had the, the, we see that in the, the, the Old Testament scrolls. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, son of, or Joel, son of, a mouthpiece for God. And so before it all got written down in the Bibles we have now, bless the Lord, we have his word. We don't need any other thing. Everything you need to know God's will is in those pages everything and if anything's ever confusing that's when you go grab someone you look up to in the faith and say hey i've got a question will you help me can i have your advice and when that person gives you the advice you then take that advice and go right back to god's word and say okay is that fly it's like that sieve when you're shaking out the confectioner sugar or whatnot everything's going through that little filter thing and all of a sudden that's god's word everything goes through that so is god learning god's will a matter of learning the dice no There's something deeper there. Go to God. You have God's word. Go to people you trust and see what God has to say about it. If at the very minimum you want to know anything, start with 1 Corinthians 10. 
Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Is what you're doing giving God glory? No. Stop. If you want to sin to keep going, you've now found you have an idol in your life. Knock it off. Or commandments one or two of the Ten Commandments is going to come find you. It's like if you have to keep something so much you have to sin to keep it, it's probably an idol. Knock it off. That needs to stop. And if your friend that you're going to for advice is not recognizing that and, and calling you on the carpet for it, that is not a good friend for to go to for advice. I mean, if I want to lose weight, I have to eat a certain way and I have to exercise a certain way. Anyone who wants to tell me otherwise is not giving me good advice. That's just the way it is. It's all about things that go in me and then the exercise that goes out of me, so to speak. You can massage it a little bit, but it's like that is the basic. So, oh, you can eat whatever you want. It doesn't really matter as long as you do. No, you're wrong. There's no way that works. I know. Believe me, I know. The one thing I have in common with Oprah Winfrey, besides human DNA, is my accordion of my weight loss, big and small and big and small. There's only one way to lose weight, aside from like a surgery or some kind of magic pill or something like that. That's it. It's all about what you put in and, and the exercise you do. So I've, I've just have learned that. Now I get it. There's nutritionists and they say different things. Fair enough. But just in terms of what you can do day by day, fine. We got the promotion, the plot, the promotion, the plan, now a proclamation, 12 to 15. Then on the 13th day of the month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province in the language of each people, all Hamans. All of his orders to the king's satraps, the governors, the various provinces, the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on the single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to get drunk, to drink. I guess that's what a king does. But the city of Susa was bewildered. It's a brutal Passover irony. Look at your text. What day is it? It is the, uh, the 13th day of this special month. Leviticus 23, the Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The reason why we celebrate Easter is different every year because we're waiting on the Jewish lunar calendar. Women, you celebrate your monthly cycle on a 28-day lunar calendar. Rome, when it gives us our Roman calendar, it's not 28 days. I know February is 28 days many times, but it's a deeper calendar. So our months are different than a Jew's months. Our years are different than their years. Check out the date sometime in a Jewish calendar. It's a big number. Easter is always a different time each year because Passover is always a different time each year. And Easter is dependent upon Passover because you've got to have Good Friday. By the, the Passover story, Jesus was eating the Passover meal Good for Okay, so that's why Easter is always a different time of the year. If you ever wondered about that, that's why. We're dependent upon Passover. So how they have to do it in God's laws is say, whenever the first month is, because the first month's going to change based upon how the, the year pans out. Whenever the first month is, 14th day. So the brutal Passover irony. What's Passover celebrating? That night, 
in their deliverance from Egypt, when the angel of death saw the blood of that innocent creature painted on the doorpost and passed over, did not kill. So here it is, Passover Eve. It just happened as they rolled the dice that night. You know, you can't do work on Passover. You can't prepare your Passover lamb. You can't make your unleavened bread. You can't make your bitter herbs or all the other things you're going to make in your Passover Seder meal. You have to have that all done. When are you doing it? On that prep day, the day before. Celebrating God's great deliverance of Israel. Showing up on the cross where our innocent creature, so to speak, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, His blood saves us. Pays the penalty of our sins. Christ, Paul says, our Passover lamb. I've attended Christian Passover meals. You do not eat lamb. The lamb has already been eaten, as it were. He's already been sacrificed. Jesus. A Christian Passover meal, we had a lamb bone, just representing. But nobody ate it. Of course, you don't eat a bone, but it's just, it's just sitting there as a symbol. The lamb has already been sacrificed. Oh, what a brutal irony. As God governed the rolling of that dice... It just happened to land on Passover Eve, the most meaningful prep day of all the history, all the calendar year. That's the day. So that those Jews on that day are going to realize, are we going to trust God? Are we going to celebrate his Passover? Are we going to be able to live one more day and have this meal that celebrates God's faithfulness and protection and deliverance and all those things? Or are we going to run and die because everyone's going to come at us and plunder everything? That day. And with God, there is no random. That is like the most pregnant day on the calendar in terms of when it could happen. Boom. It's a great put up or shut up moment. It's a moment when you realize, I have faith or I have faith with teeth at that point. Wow. What a brutal Passover irony. And honestly, did you see how that unfolded? Haman wondered what he wanted and then watched the machine work. There's nothing as efficient as a powerful organization getting what it wants. Boom, 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 boom. And everyone knew. Done. Wow. How should I respond to the injustices of life? Because life isn't about a stupid little fork in my kitchen. How do I respond when things are unjust? When things happen to me, and I, or things happen to you, things happen to me, when you expect certain things to happen and certain things don't happen, in fact, other things happen, when you do that good deed and you get punished. You know, Martin Luther King taught us about civil disobedience and willing to go to jail and willing not to pick up a sword, so to speak, but willing to, 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 to be persecuted for the sake of what he believed in. And, you know, he's a great example, but we don't have to rest on him because we, ha- we have a great example, Jesus Jesus, the great kangaroo court of history, a rushed through trial to put him on the cross. He didn't deserve any of it. But like a lamb to a slaughter, he kept his mouth shut. He fulfilled that Isaiah 53 passage. The greatest injustice of all time had the greatest outcome of all time. Let that sink for one second. The greatest injustice of all kind, all time was a sinless Savior who had to die like a criminal. He had to die for the very sins he never committed. But the greatest possible outcome came out of that. Because he died in your place. If we take it at face value that the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23, then that is your cross. That is your death. That the paycheck you're clocking in, clocking out every day with your sin, that's your death you're earning. 
And Jesus let his blood flow so that that death would be passed over. He is our Passover lamb. That's your cross he's on, Christian. That is the greatest injustice of all time. He, with a perfect relationship with the Father God, as he is on the cross and taking my sin and my shame, God has to forsake him. Because just like in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, were, once they became sinful, couldn't be in the presence of a holy God. He had to kick him out. And the whole rest of the Bible, God's saying, I'm going to bring him back, and I'm going to make it possible to bring my kids back. But when it became possible on that cross, when Jesus became my sin, the Father had to, for once in Jesus' entire existence, he had to endure God's disapproval, forsaken, back turn, whatever you want to say, he became that very sin that couldn't be intimate with Almighty God. And that had to be the hardest moment of his life. Especially then he hears these bozos crossing the by saying, if you're really the Son of God, save yourself. You idiots. The moment he saves himself and gets off that cross, he saves nobody. And that irony is killing Jesus as he's dying. That had to be the hardest moment of his life. And here it is. Passover. The day. You know, if God's going to show up, he hasn't yet. But if he's going to show up, Esther, we love you. We get why you're keeping your lips sealed. But if you're going to show up, you better open that mouth. You better let, because Haman guy's going to win, and evil's going to win. The reader of this is going, Esther, please talk. Do something to people. What's going to happen? The reader's saying here, what's going to happen? Are Esther and Mordecai, are they going to say anything? Or are they just going to twiddle their thumbs and go, well, we don't know what we can do, because the moment we say something, they're going to kill us. That's true. So how should I respond to the injustices of life? Focus on God. Trust him. Psalm 31, David said, but I trust you, God. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Trust God. My dad once said to me, son, you either trust God or you don't. You can't fake it either way. Our faith is an intellectual faith. Our faith is a heart faith. But both your mind and your heart can betray you. That's why Disney did us wrong. When Mother Willow tells Pocahontas, follow your heart. Hogwash. The last thing you should do biblically is follow your heart. Your mind, your, your thoughts may betray your heart, but your trust, your trust is either real or it's not. You can't fake it. So you say, well, I'm struggling with my faith. Start with faith being trust. I trust you, God. I don't know how history is going to unfold, but I trust you're going to do the right thing. That's a big opening move right there. If you can make that move, I like your faith. If you can trust God when times are really hard, I really like your faith. Respond like Jesus. What did Jesus do? Dudes are hammering steel spikes in his body. And he says, forgive them, Father. Jesus says in, in, in Mark 12, love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke 6, love your enemies. Well, my enemy is doing me wrong. So, are you supposed to stop loving them when they do you wrong? No, they're your enemy. Love them. Pray for those who persecute you. If Martin Luther King's example taught you anything, that. If Jesus' example has taught you anything, that. Focus on God, respond like Jesus, submit to God's will. And by the way, when you love somebody, 
a biblical love is selfless, it is sacrificial, and it is service. If you say I love you to somebody, you are then, you, and biblically, be selfless. Sacrifice. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5. Love is selfless, sacrificial, and service. If your love isn't a service, you're probably lusting. Lusting gets, love gives. Submit to God's will with prayer, by your words, by your deeds, by your attitude. There's a lot to trusting God when injustice happens. When bad things happen, run to God. Run, run, run. You give it to the prodigal son. He repented in that manure pile he was feeding the pigs out of. And he realized, I can go back to dad. He's probably not going to take me, but I can try. He runs. He didn't know that daddy was going to run to him, though. The only time in the Bible where God said to run, right there. When you're going through garbage and crap, run to God. Oh my gosh, run to God. That's your moment. When you are going through the injustices of life, run to God. You have what Mordecai doesn't have. You have that faith that looks back at the cross. You have that faith that allows you to trust God. We don't even know if Mordecai has that. Not yet. We don't know if Esther has that. We're just hoping they open their mouth. Injustice from Esther chapter 2 and 3. Thank you for letting me share.